Welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I am Boris Ebenstein. Today I am speaking with Jens Pippich, who is currently an executive committee member and the SVP Services and Innovation at Fressnapf Maxizo, a leading pet care provider in Europe. We'll introduce Jens properly at the start of our interview, covering his roles at Fressnapf, executive search firm Russell Reynolds, media company ProSiebenSat1 and consulting firm McKinsey and Company. I invited Jens to the show for three reasons. First, doing well, feeling fine is about people's biggest goals in work and life, and Jens has achieved some of the professional goals that many of us set. He's had the chance to join big-name organizations in senior leadership roles. He set strategy and deployed capital to build businesses. He scaled startups and diversified income streams for established corporates. His story might bear lessons, especially for those of us in the early and mid-stages of our careers looking to get ahead. Secondly, Jens' story is interesting not just for what he did and does, but how. He is one of the most resourceful and self-propelled people I know. Jens does not wait around for directions. He self-organizes a career fair to generate employment leads. He shapes his own strategy roles to include operational components that allow him to stay close to execution. And he enrolls as an intensive caretaker during the early phase of COVID when he seeks an opportunity to make a difference. He's a self-starter. And there's something empowering about the way he's in the driver's seat. Finally, I invited Jens because, although we were never particularly close, we've known each other since the mid-90s, and our paths were somewhat similar. It's a chance for both of us to reflect on our various stations and how we ended up there. In our far-ranging conversation, we cover what high-impact strategy roles look like and what to avoid, how in-house venture investing works and why a company would pursue it, the differences between early and later stage investing, including but not limited to tech companies, how exactly executive search works as a two-sided business serving companies and candidates, and the things that make a headhunter go, wow. Here's Doing Well, Feeling Fine with Jens Pippich. All right, welcome everyone. Today I'm sitting down with Jens Pippich. Jens is a member of the Exco at Fresnapf Maxi Zoo a leading pet care provider in 13 European countries with annual sales of more than three and a half billion euros and just a little over 15,000 employees. He's the SVP, Services and Innovation, and we'll dive a little deeper into what that means exactly as part of this show. As part of that portfolio, Jens is also the MD of Activet Vet Clinics. He has a passion for innovation and ventures. And prior to his current roles, he was the CEO of seven ventures, ProSiebenSat1 Accelerator and Investment Unit. And in between, he was an executive director at Russell Reynolds, which is one of the leading firms in executive search, which we also know as headhunting. Jens, welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So there's lots and lots to discuss. And um, just before we get going, I wanted to um, make a few points here real quick. The first is Doing Well and Feeling Fine is a podcast about people's biggest goals in work and life. And um, Jens and I have known each other for, what is it now, almost 30 years, 27 years, something it's like that. Crazy. It's crazy. We're, um, we've known each other for a long time, and I've tracked Jens's career from a distance, not super close, but from a distance, and he's someone who's done really well for himself. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the different stations in Jens's CV, and I hope that our fam familiarity with each other allows us to dive a little deeper and explore what was a good experience, what was helpful, but maybe something that he wanted to move through uh, more quickly. And all of this in service of helping folks out there who are listening 
uh, trying to plot their own careers um, because Jens is quite a bit further down the line and by no means done, much the opposite, but a little bit further in the program and, and I think there's a lot we can learn. So that's the goal. Um, also, I'm just really excited because I do think then we can make today's program a bit more of a dialogue because we are genuinely catching up with each other. We have genuinely <laughs> not spent that much time uh, over the past few years. That's true. Um, and it's just nice to to make it more of a dialogue. But first of all, welcome, thank you, and I'm looking forward to to the next few, you know, minutes, maybe hours. Let's see where we get to. Pleasure. Um, yeah, and actually, it's uh, maybe we should start by catching up a little bit on how we met, because I think that's actually a very fun story. Uh, maybe I start, and you can. Fill in the blanks. Absolutely. Go ahead. So it's what, 1996? 1996. The year is 96. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was still in high school. Um, I was super interested in media. So I started my own school paper. Actually, very, very, very small. In the beginning, it was only uh, distributed to our classmates. I did it to, together with a friend. So we, uh, we distributed about like 20 copies of the magazine. And then it grew, you know, became a school paper. Then we distributed it in other other schools and so on. And during that time, we, of course, wanted to catch up with celebrities, you know, artists, musicians, musicians, um, whatever. And at that time, uh, there was a, a television station. It uh, was called MTV. I don't know if you still remember it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I certainly do. I don't know if our listeners know of it or, you know, anyway, and, it was a big thing in the 90s and 80s. Uh, yeah, very big, very big. So uh, all the, uh, the the VJs, the, the moderators of the show, they were celebrities uh, to us themselves. And that's how I was interested in getting to know Boris, because he was a VJ at the time for MTV in London. So uh, I traveled to London with a friend uh, to interview Boris um, for my school paper. And that was how uh, how our uh, ways crossed. And uh, that was the first time we met. Wait, before you go any further, let's let's quickly dwell on this for a bit. So when we spoke and we did the interview, you were genuinely interviewing for the school paper. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it was it, it was not a school paper anymore. It had grown bigger, but it was essentially it had grown bigger from this school paper to more of a city magazine back that's, in the days. Well, that's that's amazing, you know, because what what happened? My recollection of this was so um, maybe to backtrack a little bit. So what happened here in the nineteen nineties? Um, this was coming up to uh, my last year of high school. I was in my uh, abitur year at the time, thirteenth grade. Um, was spending my some of my evenings and weekends DJing in some of the clubs in Berlin and also had a radio show in Berlin. So this was KISS FM, had a show two hours on a Friday night, interviewing international DJs that were passing through town, and then had a longer show on Saturday night. Um, again, international DJs passing through town. Um, but then it was a bit more of a chance for me to play a set as well because this was literally like four hours. So it started at 1 a.m., lasted until 5 a.m. Anyway, at some point... There was a casting for an MTV VJ role that I knew was coming down the pipe. And uh, a, a classmate of mine who was also at my school said that she wanted to go there. She was in the same building working for radio. She was working for Deutsche Welle. I was working for KISS FM, same building in Berlin. And she said, why don't you accompany me to this casting? And I said to her, for sure, I'll come with you and kind of just, just 
join you in spirit, I guess, as a supporter, what have you. And we uh, we ended up uh, meeting the casting director. We spent some time together. I went to the casting the next day, and one thing led to the next, and I ended up actually winning this thing, moving to London, sort of taking this job, VJ Boris, what have you. And the first few days were completely nuts because there were just so many press queries, and people wanted to understand, you know, who's this German kid who now gets to go to London, do this job. And remember, folks, MTV was quite a bit bigger than, well, maybe it's still big now. I don't know. But, but it was super big. It, it was a big deal. Like, I yes. remember we did some pan-European shows, and at some point I was told that literally, I mean, double-digit millions of viewers yes. were watching. So it was like a, it was a big thing. thing. But um, the interesting thing about these first few days of being interviewed, there, there was a kind of newspaper, magazine, radio station, TV station uh, throughout the entire day that, that wanted to do an interview. So one slot after the next. And you were one of them. And I was convinced that you came from a sizable regional northwest German paper. You were so professional and so slick that I was convinced that it's actually a legit thing much bigger than the school paper. Yeah. And I mean, that was that was honestly, that was part of the part of the deal. Right. We always we were always too young for everything. Right. For getting into the big concerts, for getting the big interviews, for doing everything. And you have to, you know, pretend without lying that you are more relevant than you actually are, because otherwise you never make it past yeah, the first, you know, line of defense. And um, that's how we did it. And that's uh, that's how our, you know, uh, connection started. That's how we started. So you did a kind of fake it till you make it move. I was convinced that you were there. You so were we there. Well, <laughs> and then and then I was sort of based in London for a few years, worked for MTV, continued doing voiceovers and then started to go to university. I entered university in 1997. When did you start? Um, in 1999. Is that correct? Yes, sounds about right. 1999. And then you also, if, if I'm so, so you studied in, in Germany, studied economics in Wittenhadecke, if I'm not wrong. Correct. But you also went to Harvard to do extra courses in 2002. Is that, is that right? That's correct. The reason why I'm asking this is because I also went to Harvard to take extra courses in 1999. And this this isn't like a credentials contest or anything silly like that. But I do find it <laughs> just curious to compare what what motivated you to to go and take these courses at that point. And then I'll tell you kind of my story. That, that's a very interesting question. Um, it all started out that you know after my first four semesters in Witten, I wanted to go abroad. So I did a you know just very regular. Erasmus semester in, in Stockholm and uh, ended up doing my master's there. Um, but also I read about these, you know, summer school graduate courses that you could take at Harvard. And of course, it was a very prestigious name. And I was super intrigued to understand more. And no one else could explain it to me. So I just, you know, went to the website, applied. Um, I try to find funding for that from um, a scholarship uh, organization. Did you? Did you make it? Did yes, you? I did. Wow. Um, that was, uh, but it was not clear the moment I, I, I applied and started. It was only, I, I was only given the money afterwards. So that was, uh, mm. that, that, that was a, quite a risk for me to take. But I thought, hey, this is cool. I want to go there. And um, 
yeah, of course, on, on the one hand to get it on my CV, to be honest, but also I wanted to experience this American way of, way studying, of right? studying. And it was and it was super exciting huh. and I really enjoyed it. So basically my story is exactly the same thing. So I studied in the UK. Uh, I didn't study economics. I went to Goldsmiths and I studied uh, sociology and media studies, um, which I greatly enjoyed. And I basically, you know, plowed through two full years worth of intense scholarship. I, I, I loved it. I was basically lapping up all the literature and um, was in, you know incredibly fulfilled by it. But after year two, so like you, I mean, you said four semesters. In my case, you know, after year two, I said, I want to know what it's like to, to study in one of those Ivy League schools that are so famous that, you know, entire like, TV shows, movies are made about. Like, I want to see the thing. And I don't know what it was like for you, but when I started researching it, I realized pretty quickly that actually, I mean, there's no real entrance requirement. You know, the school's exactly. open in the summer. Exactly. You can book anything you like. Exactly. Um, it's At the time, it was, I remember it was $4,000 tuition fee per course. Yeah. So two of them were $8,000. I mean, it's a lot of money. Plus a bit, a bit of room and board. Plus so like with 10... 10,000. Exactly. But but then I thought, you know, actually, this is the full the full summer. And this is the investment. And it's a kind of once in a lifetime. I mean, I I don't know. Like, I, I never applied to get in. But I, I did apply to some Ivy schools that didn't get in. It wasn't even close. And so to me, this was the ticket to go and do it. And that's also what I wanted to get out of it. Incidentally, I turned up and I took art history and comparative literature. So again, you know, more humanities mm -hmm. and social sciences type of thing. I loved it. Like, it actually switched me on to scholarship much more but it's sort of curious that we had the same thought there pretty much around the same time mm -hmm. and it was it was just a very very cool time and actually to to clarify things after we did this interview in london we didn't really stay in touch or anything yeah. so these yeah. things now i mean we separated a bit and you know tension rises but yeah. we will meet again yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but there was no conjoined plan here. But then the plot thickens because <laughs> a few years later, after this, um, if I'm not wrong, you applied and got into McKinsey. Exactly. And, uh, what was it? Two thousand and three, four. I mean, like there was an internship that you did Two, in two thousand three. Exactly. I um, it started out at a career fair that I uh, co-organized in Witten. Um, so while uh being in Stockholm and doing my master's, I was still enrolled in Witten and, uh, you know, came back occasionally for some block uh, courses and some uh, did some paper writing and so on. But there was also a career fair. And uh, during this career fair, a lot of companies presented themselves, uh, amongst others McKinsey. And um, we, we prepared a little booklet because I also liked print stuff. So we prepared a booklet with uh, the CVs of the students in this semester. And we handed it out to the company. So I did not actually talk to McKinsey during this career fair because I was too intimidated. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I, there was no place for me there. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even sure what a consulting firm actually does. So but then after... Uh, one or two weeks, I received a letter um, that McKinsey sent to me and said, hey, we looked through this booklet and we found your CV pretty intriguing. So why don't you apply for one of our get to know each other weekend get togethers? Um, so I did this. I uh, met a bunch of consultants there and 
decided to apply for an internship, I got into McKinsey to do an internship and received a job offer after this internship. And I thought, well, sounds cool. I'll take it, even though I hadn't finished my university uh, career at that time. So I went back to Sweden. I finished my, uh, my, my courses there. I finished my degree in Germany. And then I started at McKinsey. But before that, and now I jump back a little bit, while in Sweden, I founded my own company uh, called Potential Park, which is a market research and consulting uh, firm for employer branding. And I founded it like more than uh, 20 years ago uh, and still in existence. I sold the majority of my shares. So I only have souvenir shares now. Um, but that was my first uh, you know, true entrepreneurial experience with people on the payroll responsibility and so on. But I decided against continuing that because again, I thought McKinsey, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I want to get in. I want to see what it's like. I want to learn because everybody was saying, hey, when you're into McKinsey, you will find a great job afterwards. This is this is it. Do it. So, yeah. I, so I did. Amazing. So did you start the company before you applied? So you had the master's degree going, which was in what subject, by the way? Business administration, economics. So, business administration, economics. And then while you were doing that, you said, I want to set up shop doing this market research mm -hmm. company. Exactly. And then, so you started that, that seems to have gotten some traction. Mm -hmm. And then as this was going on, you met McKinsey, got in contact, and mm -hmm. then you got the offer mm -hmm. sort of after the fact. You decided to leave, but the business kept mm -hmm. going and the business is still going, if I understood you well. That's correct. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Congratulations. All right. And so when did you then join? You joined then as a full-time associate in 2004. 2004. Okay. So exactly. let me just quickly mirror that. So, <laughs> so basically, um, my story, similar, but a little different. When I came back from Harvard, I was uh, switched on to uh, academia in a big way. And I was uh, on fire. I, I had consumed a lot of literature in the States. I had written, I had published um, sort of <laughs> built my own website in 1999, which was some sort of theory slash conceptual art experiment that, re I mean, it related to some of the stuff that I was reading at the time. It was all a little bit uh, over ambitious humanities student vibe, I would say. Okay. So I, I don't know. It's probably still somewhere out there in the ether because these things never die. So it's still there. But um, I was just so excited by immersing myself in that academic work that I was convinced I wanted to do a PhD. And I realized that I could do a PhD at my college in London without actually doing a master's degree. Mm -hmm. So if um, if I had a topic and I could find the supervisors to support the work, and if I could somehow generate the funding either of my own uh, means or find a funder from one of the you know economic research councils or what have you that would fund this kind of work, then off you go, good to go. And I really, really liked that idea. And so I put in an application, I came up with the topic, found um, doctoral supervisors who would who would work with me and that was cooking but I still had some romantic attachment to this idea of studying in the US so mm -hmm. I, I, I placed one last application in <laughs> in Boston and I, I didn't apply to Harvard but I applied uh, to do a master's degree at MIT in something called uh, comparative media studies and I, I, I went over there I visited the campus the uh, department was led by a professor, I think, called Henry Jenkins. I'm not entirely sure. Someone who was big in video games. Mm -hmm. 
And we met and we talked and, you know, it was a great rapport. And, and, and I said to myself, if I get in, if I, if I have a chance to study here, I'll do it. I was completely enthralled by, you know, Kendall, MIT, that campus, engineering. I mean, it was perfect, but I didn't get in. So I got a letter that said, hey, it was kind of handwritten letter that said, hey, Boris, you made it through several rounds of cuts, but the last ones were tough ones. And I'm afraid to tell you that on this uh, count, you didn't make it. I was crushed. But then I picked up, you know, I mean, crushed, crushed, uh, you know, okay, it's not the worst thing in the world. Actually, I hadn't even fully appreciated how much money it would cost to do all this. In the end, I didn't get it. So I went back to my school in Britain and started my PhD, did my PhD. I had written it all up by about 2003 and I had my oral examination. So the the sort of viva voce or whatever that, you know, then kind of confers the degree on you, 2004, and I was done. And at that point, I took my first job. I started working at Imperial College, doing research in the business school there uh, with a lovely team that was focused on the intersection of engineering, business, and organizational behavior and innovation. Uh, So how do you do technology-based innovation through things like organizational learning, sharing business knowledge, working together between people who, you know, sketch ideas on paper, that sort of thing. And we did research, and I did that for a while, published some papers, got a good feel for the academic industry, if you will, and then felt a strong motivation that I needed to do something more directly related to a company's performance. Because I I felt like talking about business in the academic literature just feels one or two degrees removed. Actually feels Mm -hmm. two degrees removed, to be precise, because consulting Mm -hmm. feels one degree removed. Mm -hmm. And this stuff feels like two degrees removed. So I wanted to apply to consulting, and long story short, I will also openly admit that I was not at all successful on my first applications. I probably had a, a CV that was way too orientated towards sociology, culture, media, and I got a lot of very polite rejections. But one company did listen, and that was uh, indeed McKinsey, and so 2006, uh, I started. But back to you now. So you started 2000, where did you start? In, in Berlin. In Berlin. Yeah. Okay. Like me. Berlin office. Yeah, it was it was crazy actually. I was I mean, first of all, I was super excited to join. I didn't really know what to expect. Then I get into the office the first day. Everything is neatly prepared. You had your business cards already printed. Uh, your computer was already set up, not only there, but it actually worked. And everything was like super well organized. How the how the onboarding was was organized and structured. Um, and then I uh, sorry, let me just ask you: Did you ever have an onboarding process that was this clean? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, and then you get thrown. Uh, into uh, your first project or study, as McKinsey called it. And then you start and you honestly, you don't really know anything. And uh, you not only don't you know anything about the business that you're supposed to consult with, and then you don't know anything about the processes. You don't know anything about working long hours in general. So everything's like, overwhelming and and you are under the impression because you typically only work with people that have been there for at least a couple of months or years and you are the uh, the new kid on the block and you and you just don't really know what to do so I was super overwhelmed for the first months and I thought well this is I don't know how to handle this but then you get the hang of it you hopefully find someone to show you the ropes 
and then um, you start applying your analytical skills that are ulti ultimately the reason why McKinsey chose you. You know, they don't hire for actual knowledge or more for like analytical skills, interpersonal uh, skills, communication skills, and so on and so forth. And uh, how was it for you when you started? Pretty similar, I would say. So I also felt that within 48 hours, I was onboarded into this entire infrastructure and system of which is kind of an industrial, like it's an industrial sized machine for producing knowledge and products, if you will, that has its own highly specific way of making these kinds of end products. And and you have to learn that. I remember in my onboarding, I had a, a person there who had done an internship before. And as part of the onboarding, we had a very brief piece of instruction on how do you structure and write a memo. Because while most people are convinced that consulting is essentially about making slides, a lot of the end products happen in written form, uh, which is now actually quite on vogue again. I mean, for example, at Zalando, we always wrote memos. Amazon is famous for its six-page memos. So sometimes you just want to articulate your idea and recommendation in a piece of writing as opposed to in a chart that totally you know, runs the risk of lacking storyline. So anyway, we were instructed to write a memo about something trivial. I don't know. It, it was it was some hypothetical client situation. And, you know, we were supposed to write a one-page memo that was structured into three parts. And the person who had done the internship before was several years younger than I and was crunching away, punching the keyboard, writing this memo, and was done within 27 minutes in this, like, perfect memo. I mean, he had even research some of the supporting data on the internet to, to make the memo more real. And I was still trying to figure out how do you produce that particular paragraph symbol, which old McKinsey memos <laughs> oh, used yeah. to have at the beginning of a bullet. They didn't use bullet exactly. points. They used paragraph symbols, like a turned around paragraph symbol. And I was still trying to figure out where that thing was to be found on the keyboard. So it was like a bizarre experience of either you meet people who are in the know and who are totally competent and confident or, you know, you have the group of people who are clearly rabbits looking into the headlights. I was one of those. But you're brought up to speed fairly quickly. And uh, I would add, my pathway into McKinsey was a tiny bit different from yours because I think you came through the generalist route and what you experienced applies to pretty much 90% of people. I came through a specialist route. So, you know, I tried to position my academic experience and some of the business school work that I did as a postdoc as somehow being or positioning me as a sort of organizational behavior slash organization design or at any rate, you know, people and organization expert. And so I came in that specialist route and I could bank a little bit on this knowledge, which bought me some time to come up to speed with how the consulting industry and production process actually works. Tell us a little bit about did you find your sector? Did you find your geography? How did you spend your years making, you know, making your own McKinsey, as they call it? Yeah, and that's the thing. Now, in retrospect, everything uh, uh, was, a, you know, seems like very good decisions that I, that I, that I made at the time. But during the time, it was just, it just happened. I was, I thought I was not interested in certain industries like insurance or banking, even though nowadays I would say I actually like these industries. But I, but at that point in time, it seemed to me like too scary because I didn't really know what was happening under the hood. So I 
focused more on consumer facing things because you, know, you felt that was more intuitive yeah to, yeah. yeah like re retail or uh, or um, i did some projects in logistics so uh, things i could more easily relate to but i was always on the growth and sales side of things i was never in the uh, working on you know cost cutting or restructuring projects or something like that so um, that's what i did um, and you know after the first few uh, projects you find a group of people that you enjoy working with that typically take you on and along with them on new projects that's what i did as well and i was uh, you know slightly different to you i joined as a fellow as it's called so someone who has or, or who had like a master's degree uh, but no phd so i did that for i worked for Bit more than two years and then i returned uh, to academia to pursue a phd was part of the deal you get paid for an additional year uh, to work on your phd so uh, i i did that i i worked with some of the data that i had generated in my last project which was on on uh, human capital theory so it was like a big survey that we did together with uh, Spiegel magazine and uh, Xing back in the days called OpenBC like and a LinkedIn kind of German like version right exactly like mm -hmm. the LinkedIn kind of uh, social network and we surveyed i don't know like some 16,000 students and recent graduates on their uh, career development and what they'd studied where they'd where they'd been to high school um, what their mobility patterns were had they had they moved ever and uh, what are they making in their first job and all these kinds of questions so we had done this as a McKin McKinsey project and I was allowed to work with the data set so I took the data set I did some statistical analysis on that and wrote a couple of papers on this and that was uh, the basis for my PhD that I worked on for a year and then the tell financial us, crisis hit. One second before we go there, just, just, just tell us what was the central argument in your thesis? First of all, the question was in human, human capital theory. I was looking for indicators that could predict a high entry salary. Mm. So let's 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 put aside whether that is a uh, something to really strive for, but you know, I did it. I, I said, you know, to measure success in early career, a high compensation is a good uh, it's it's a good measure for that and let's see what actually drives that. You know, a lot of internships, language skills, uh, mobility and so on and so forth. So um, that was the core that I that I researched. Um, but you said basically it's uh, any combination of these variables that you surveyed, which were by and large sort of demographic questions, people's mm -hmm. different stations in life, languages, etc., rather than something like the level of skill that they had or some sort of, I don't know, IQ or what have you, what could be other predictors, right? So yeah, that's correct. I mean, we did we did some kind of qualitative measures in terms of what was the uh, grade point average in your uh, high school high school graduation. What uh, 
what grade did you gradu graduate with uh, in your university career? So we ask these kinds of questions. Of course, we only ask people, so you don't really know if they, you know, if they're telling the truth. Yeah. If they're telling the truth, but still, let's assume they, you know, generally do. Um, so we factored these things in, but it was just a different time. Nobody yeah. was actually questioning whether this is a good indicator for success. Yeah, yeah like a good target function uh, yeah, to solve for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. This, and it was it was just like different times. And uh, so that's that's very important to keep in mind. Yeah. I mean, it is, after all, almost two decades ago. And culture and what we hold as ideals, thankfully, has evolved quite a bit. But it is interesting. And I, and I do think um, there might be folks listening out here thinking, hmm, is it worth doing that extra internship to, uh, you know, optimize it, the chances of a high entry salary? By the way, on the internships, just as a small little tangent, one of the things that I was told a lot as I was applying for consultancy positions was I had zero internships. And it would have been a very well-received proxy metric to say, here's Continental or Bosch or Siemens or you know the Daimler Group as a place that has already vetted your skills and that has looked at you has given you an opportunity to do some work and see a business from the inside. And this is, I think, very, very important what you're just saying. Everything, or at least I did on my CV, was basically done or I, I did it because I thought it would vet me for the next position. Yeah, so when I did uh, my first internships in university, I thought, okay, what is a company that other people at least have heard of? Yeah, so they know it's a brand name. It's some kind of this is the entire concept of branding. Yeah, so that you show that someone has vetted you. And McKinsey is like the biggest vetting organization for professional uh, careers, basically. That is, is comparable to Harvard and some of the other names that just give a good uh, are are perceived as a good predictor for future success I, I agree with you it's very interesting to to see how dependent we still are on these credential signals yeah and they might still be bad signals in the sense exactly. that you know you might be disappointed but there is at least a you know non-zero significant chance that yeah uh, some vetting has occurred and there is indeed some talent or capability here it, exactly and it's not like that you have to go through these um, stations or uh, steps in your career, but they most certainly help you. And, and that's very important to understand, not only because they are seen as some kind of uh, lighthouses for, uh, for what, what you have achieved in the past, but actually they do check for some skills and they do check for some uh, features that might come in handy for a business career. Yeah, I think the the critical pushback uh, would be that they also tend to produce what is sometimes called uh, in jest and in other places surplus elites. So people who are entitled, who think of themselves as particularly exceptional while actually lacking the resilience to deal with some of the difficulty that jobs in these places bring with them. Completely maybe they don't agree. have the practical skill. Maybe they don't have the interpersonal relationship skills. So actually, after all has been said and done, they... <laughs> yeah. And these things change nowadays because back in the days, it was way harder 
to showcase what you're actually capable of than it is today. Because my school paper going back was not really seen as a, you know, a very visible indicator for my uh, business competence. Um, whereas now, if I were young now, I would probably run a YouTube, TikTok, whatever channel uh, and would most likely not even consider going into industry, but continue down this down this path. And you would do the same pro probably because that's just so much easier now to create an audience. Yeah, and, and to demonstrate your contributions, right? I was thinking about this the other day. I was listening to... Uh, Scott Galloway's podcast on Mondays. He talks about markets and he's got an assistant uh, analyst or he's got a, yeah, I don't know if assistant is fair, so sorry, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I think his name is Ed and he's his co-host. So let's put it like this. Um, but it seems like this is a very young person and highly capable and has really interesting takes on the market and proves the contribution quality every Monday. So now you build up this repertoire. Maybe you don't really need the brand marquee signaling of the institution, but you can simply say, look, I've been commenting on markets for 30, 40, 50 episodes, whatever it is. If you want to check whether my takes are relevant, you know, have a listen. And that's a very interesting, let's say, alternative to... Exactly. And it is super relevant. And that's... I, I very often get asked, how do, uh, how do we now or how do I now recruit for people and how do I select people into positions and I honestly have to say that it's definitely way less relevant what university you've gone to yeah. or uh, what kind of p positions you've held in the past as long as you can prove that what we are looking for is something that is in your wheelhouse yeah absolutely I mean even McKinsey just to con conclude on McKinsey's take on talent I remember when I left Dominic Barton was still the uh, global managing partner. He was talking about making it his goal to hire at least one person, possibly more, who basically don't have a degree, not even a bachelor's degree, but still are very much needed on the client side, very much needed to enrich teams and the diversity of thinking on these problem-solving situations. And uh, again, yesterday I was listening to uh, another McKinsey alumnus who's working now on... Um, job creation opportunities and again he was stressing this is Byron Augustin he was again stressing you know uh, we need to find more ways to give people access to the labor market who don't have these credentials but who actually have the capabilities exactly so coming back to each other's track records you spent some years at McKinsey I think you went on to be an engagement manager which is a kind of project leader was working closely with the partners on the individual study, but actually leading the work end to end. Is that then the point at which you decided to do something else? Why Why did you not pursue more consulting? Was it just mm. a coincidence that an opportunity came around or have you had yeah. enough? Or <laughs> So after my I finished my PhD, um, as I um, as I outlined, the financial crisis hit. So McKinsey was not too keen on pulling you back in right away. So they gave you a little bit of, you know, free time and possibility to do something else because you were still there. They could reactivate you very easily. So I went back to uh, to Stockholm to start a spin-off of Potential Park, which was a matchmaking platform for graduates, universities and employers. Um, so I did that. 
but then decided, ah, no, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. It was. It, um, I didn't feel feel right, so I went back to McKinsey, uh, continued as you said as an engagement manager, um, but I also thought ah, I don't really see myself working in consulting for the rest of my life because back in the days I don't know what it's like these days. It it meant like leaving early on a Monday morning, uh, returning uh, on a Thursday night, and basically in between all you did was work. Yeah. You got up in the morning, you went to the clients, and you came back to the hotel by midnight or 11-ish. So you might hit the gym, the hotel gym, uh, grab a bite, and then go to sleep. Yeah, or go to your room, finish the work, go to sleep. Exactly. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I so, mean, we've all been there. And, and, yeah. and that's, I mean, we might glorify it now, but this, um, this was even exhausting back in the days and even more so it would be now because it's just not it's not the way it works anymore um, but back then I thought this is not what I want to do so I was I was open for alternatives I was not actively looking and then I was uh, approached by an executive search consultant aka headhunter yes um, and um, they asked me if I wanted to interview for a uh, position at ProSiebenSat1, one of the largest media companies in Europe, mainly active uh, back then in television. I interviewed with the CEO at the time and um, it was a match. And then I started as uh, SVP for strategy and operations. Um, so re was responsible for uh, leading the digital transformation of that large media company yeah and then i started my own idea after a year i went on a learning expedition to the u.s uh, visited silicon valley and seattle and heard about accelerator programs uh, i didn't know what it was i asked a couple of questions nobody could really tell me what it was about uh, then i um, asked uh, some of the startups how does it work and in a nutshell uh, the it worked back then, and that was like 2012. Um, you host a startup, an early stage startup, uh, provide them with office space, uh, provide them with a, a 25,000 euro ticket, give access to a network of experts, and you get a 5% equity stake. That was what we did. Um, that's this what is I, all pre-seed, right? This is sort exactly. of that way early. Way early. And that was that was new uh, to the German market. And I pitched it to the board. The board said, it sounds good. Do it. I did it as a side hustle mm -hmm. um, to my uh, strategy yeah, work. Yeah, role, yeah. And, um, and then it took off. And it uh, became successful. It worked out fine. Uh, and then I focused more and more on that. Um, and continued working on the accelerator side, investing in very early stage startups, coached them. And we thought, and that was the reason why we did it, you could eventually sell advertising to them, television advertising to them, and generate new clients and also benefit financially from the equity stake that you had in the companies. But then let's unpack that a little bit because there's <laughs> there's a lot going on here. Not least the strategic 
commitment to supporting an accelerator when there could be other things you could be you could be doing as a media company that may be more uh, closer to your core capabilities. But let's maybe start with the strategy and ops role. Mm-hmm. The first thing that struck me in that title was the combination of something that felt more like an extension of the CEO agenda, perhaps, where you have a strategy team and then you're looking at how will this business compete in the next few years and you're making kind of multi-year plans and you're looking for pockets of value and you know how you could capture more of it for your shareholders and so on. And then you have ops, mm-hmm. which in the media context sounds to me like, I don't know, maybe you've got broadcast equipment and you've got sort of very practical nuts and bolts type of things mm-hmm. that need to be managed and there's probably cost involved and there might be people there. And so can you explain to us a little bit what you actually did and how these two things, the very strategic and the very operational, came together and whether they whether they did, in fact, come together? A very, very good question. And to be honest, it was a, it was a discussion that I had with my... Um, with my boss at that time and he, he thought well you don't just want to be the strategy guy right because that is just an extension of your McKinsey work and nobody will take you serious um, when you are um, when you're applying later on for for other positions by, so. by, by, by the way just be, before you go on I sorry to interrupt you but I, I do think this is an important criticism that is often put against strategy roles yeah. so you know we should kind of dwell on that because um, some of our listeners might be thinking, oh, this is awesome. You know, I could do an in-house strategy role. That sounds great. You know, I'll be close to the CEO agenda and there'll be a lot of impact to be had. But there is a conception out there that those strategy, internal strategy offices sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's true. And I think it it is very true what you just said. You have access to the CEO agenda. You get to see a lot of things. You You might actually shape the strategy for an organization yes but this is it right there is no you don't really get your hands dirty and that is something that you can do and maybe even should do for a certain period of time but you need Agreed. to have a, a way out and that's very important and if you don't have that early on you might end up doing the consulting work with only one client and uh, that was something that I didn't want to do so I always thought okay well I am a bit of a doer. I want to create things. I want to shape things. And that's why this operations part was for me more a thing of doing something um, in the digital world as opposed to the nuts and bolts of a broadcast operation. So that was not my responsibility, but the doing something for uh, or beyond the strategy work was definitely part of my work. So, so, so what was in ops then? The development of new business ideas, essentially, mm. that we did because we were on a diversification path to become more independent from traditional linear television advertising revenues. So that ultimately means back then it was still very heavily um, dependent on the advertising breaks that you see on TV that were very profitable but as there were you know already challenges on the horizon for when it comes to uh, television media consumption we knew that we had to do something else so we were uh, diversifying into standalone b2c business models uh, that we could power through 
our advertising reach. So that was that was the concept. Um, so I started by um, extending that approach that was already there into a more early stage target group. So the very early stage startups. So I started the accelerator program. I then realized the idea is good. We find cool startups because it was very new in the German market. But the hypothesis that you could ultimately sell advertising space to those early stage startups after they graduate from the accelerator was just not true because mm. it was, yeah, it takes way longer until you are big enough to pay for advertising time on TV. Sure. No, I mean, you have, I mean, you as in ProSiebenZ1, you have the inventory, but the startup, if it looks as it's at its marketing budget, I mean, yeah. is a primetime TV spot now the best use of their... Exactly. So uh, then we realized, okay, we need to change something. And that's, uh, I iterated quite often the, the concept. It always stayed the same. We were, we were uh, in a way, always focusing on working with startups, but the startups became a bit older, a bit more, uh, a bit better funded. We didn't take a direct equity stake, but worked with a convertible note to have more flexibility in terms of valuation. Um, it was not mandatory to move to our offices because as the companies grew and were bigger, they already had offices. It would have been more a, uh, a burden for them to come to our offices. Um, so uh, we, we changed the program a little bit and uh, then it worked then it worked very well uh, we found uh, startups to work with um, we identified new clients for ProSiebenSat1 uh, we generated good returns from selling our shares in some of the companies so and as this grew I was then um, asked to take over the CEO role uh, at 7Ventures which is again similar business model but focusing on even later stage companies. So uh, we worked in the early days uh, with Zalando and, um, and companies that are very, very well-known household brands these days uh, that benefited from the media reach that ProSiebenZ1 provided. Yeah, and, and in fact, um, if I'm not wrong, uh, one of the things that Zalando did that really put it on the map with consumers was to take out a television spot. Exactly. And um, which was totally counterintuitive for an internet company at the time. It was obvious that you would advertise online and here they went and advertised on TV at great expense. And that sold something that nobody uh, thought was possible, the shoes. Yeah, uh, exactly. That was, that, that was the core of the business and it was just this very famous uh, scream uh, campaign. So where yes. someone knew who received the, the scream of joy, the scream of joy. Um, so that was, joy. that was, that was the time. Yeah, uh, we talked about it many times at Zalando and um, because that's uh, where you ended up. That's where I ended up. Yeah. Exactly. I ended up at Zalando and we spoke about the scream of joy many times. And, you know, how could you reconstruct the magic of that moment that resonated so well with audiences and really lit up huge groups of people to um, the value proposition that Zalando in the end offered to customers. And this was a totally counterintuitive idea at the time, but it worked tremendously well. I want to come back and unpack some stuff around this venture investing. And please feel free to respond to them in any way that you want. But the first thing is, it strikes me as a risky idea to take an established performing media company and then focus some of top management's attention on very early stage ventures whose success rate 
has got to be below 1%. I mean, I heard somewhere that it's either 7 or 9%. I can't recall it exactly, but definitely single-digit percentage of companies only ever make it to a million in revenue per annum. And then of the ones that make it, there's, again, only seven or so that make it to 10 million in revenue. So your odds of success as a new venture are tiny. And now here you are, and you're not even... You're not even involved in the later stage where you have product market fit, where there are some paying customers, where there's some annually recurring revenue. There's some sort of traction that you can that you can draw your extrapolation chart from. Mm -hmm. There's like nothing. You know, there's an idea and then there's some media inventory that you have. And by the way, I'm still concerned because the media inventory that you talk about distributing has opportunity costs, you know, because you could have a Zalando or whatever come in and take that inventory. Yeah. Now you're giving it away to some early stage startup that I'm not yeah. even sure if they can pay the price for, you know, the value of that. Yeah, that's 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 a good observation. At the same time, you have the, or um, I, I mean, I, I, can, I can only talk about what it was like back then. I mean, you had a restriction. You could sell 12 minutes of advertising time an hour. So, uh, of those 12 minutes, you sell X minutes to the traditional paying customers. Say it's eight. Then you have four minutes that you have not sold. So if you shortened the, um, the commercial break, on the one hand, you get less revenue. On the other hand, you have higher content costs because you have to fill those four minutes with content that you have to buy. So it's you know a double whammy but negative um so we thought about ways of you know selling the uh, remaining inventory and you can either do that by lowering lowering your prices but then the first eight minute paying customers would ask you to lower the rates as well so we didn't want to do that so we thought about okay what can we do that has a potential to pay us actually even more than the companies that, um, that that bought the first eight minutes. And we developed this you know, risk-sharing model. So through a, uh, by, by giving away this advertising time to startups that give us equity in return or a revenue-based uh, compensation, there is a possibility of receiving premium pay for these four minutes because if those things go through the roof they pay actually more than what they had had they just bought uh, it like on the normal normal mm. market so, so 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 what you had was you had a kind of oversupply of advertising inventory mm-hmm. that you didn't want to uh, sell at discount mm-hmm. Uh, you also didn't want to compensate by making, I don't know, 96 more minutes per day of actual extra content, mm-hmm. which does stack up to a lot of production costs and so on. And so you decided to create a vehicle which came with some risk, but also some potential upside to actually monetize that inventory at premium prices yeah. if the business was successful at some point. Exactly. And you have a bit of a downside protection because even if the business did not perform as exceptionally well as you'd hoped for, but performs okay, you still get money that justifies or that is enough to pay for this opportunity cost that you that that, that you have. It doesn't, and that's and that's a fundamental difference to a traditional venture capital business. You're not really dependent on the super outliers. If it's reasonable, that's okay. 
How so that that was a very smart business model for a company uh, such as Prosieben to uh, to monetize iLimentory. So tell us about the hit rate. And hit rate, I mean, not who became a unicorn, but rather hit rate as in what's the share of businesses that you supported that ended up meeting your requirement as advertising customers? We, we never really had a clear goal as to, you know, how many of those do we want to convert into paying advertising customers. But I can say there are paying advertising customers that came out of this. And there are companies that continue to do media for equity deals. So where the equity stake becomes larger and larger and have been sold to a new owner that have generated cash inflow for uh, for Posibens at Eins back in the days. So and again, this is this is the good thing as advertising space on television is relatively pricey. And if you get a reasonable share in a company for the advertising time you provided, the cash inflow, even if it's only one or two times, is substantial, which justifies the effort. Yeah. So um, generally speaking, the business model works. That is the reason why uh, all both Seven Ventures and the, the Accelerator are still there, because they do work. Yeah. So that, that is, it's, it, it's, it's a good business model. And you were involved in starting the accelerator, but were, were you also involved in starting Seven Ventures, or was that already around? Exactly, that was already around. Seven Ventures was already around. I was I was responsible for starting the accelerator. We then gradually moved the accelerator closer to Seven Ventures. I uh, I also became the CEO of Seven Ventures. Um, worked on that for I don't know one and a half years, and then I decided to leave. After then in total eight years. Eight so years. that was like quite a substantial amount of time, similar to the time that I spent at McKinsey. And I thought it's again time to do something to else do something because else. I had I had seen it. Can you explain for us some of the differences in the different investment types that you've that you've learned about? So all of this presumably is private capital, or did you also place public market bets? No, only private. Only private capital. Yeah. Okay, so you're a private markets investor. You have this accelerator, which is super early days. This is pre-seed. So this is what they sometimes call, you know, friends, family, fools, mm-hmm. <laughs> who mm-hmm. basically go after these businesses. So it's really early days. And then you accompany them through series ABC or something like this to some point of maturity. Mm-hmm. And then if I understood you correctly, you said earlier that you used convertible notes for these very early ventures because if you give them a 25,000 euro ticket at that point the whole enterprise might only have 100,000 you know euros worth of capital so obviously you're not buying a quarter of the business yeah. your money would convert at some later point either seed or series A when there's a valuation to the company mm-hmm. many times more than this 100,000 some sort of valuation of you know a million 4 million 5 million something like this and then your 25,000 would convert to a percentage ownership at that point in time. Alternatively, the money would be repaid as a loan or some sort of facility that works like that. And then later on, you would invest to the valuation of that round, whatever it is, A, B, C. Is that the right interval? Is this the is this the spectrum of, of investment work that you did? If you take the entire duration of my career at the Accelerator, yes. However, it changed because 
in the beginning, uh, we did this 25,000 euro ticket, very, very early stage, pre-seed. Uh, there was no revenue. There was, you know, typically only three founders that did the business, no employees, no nothing. But as I said, it was a bit of a connection gap between getting them somehow re relevant for Posimsat 1. We then decided to go after the seed Series A companies, even for the accelerator. So they already had a product. They already were generating revenues. So, um, so there were we were like not as early as we had been in the past. Um, so typically, we there were like you know seat Series A. Yeah, that was that 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 was our sweet spot. Was there no appetite for you to go and join a fund, be a VC? Mm. Yes and no. I never really thought like being a venture capitalist per se is what I wanted to do. The same as I never really wanted to be a management consultant. I always uh, enjoyed doing things that I found challenging and, then, and I always liked to create things. So I would have, uh, I had not thought about this because when I um, was at ProSiebenSat1, not only was I part of the invest of the investor or, or was a VC, but I was also building the accelerator and I was building a company and shaping the company, the vehicle itself. And that was the part that I thought was more interesting mm -hmm. than the actual investments. Um, I see. So and also working with the companies was again for me more. Uh, rewarding than the investment part. I see. Um, so that that was not like my goal. So I never I never really pursued a career in that area. I I would not say that this is not something that I would find interesting. But that was not a goal for me. Um, so when I when I decided to leave ProSiebenSat1, I I also thought, okay, well I I had been to all these, you know, conferences. I know people in the industry. I wanted to, you know, also see, you know, what else is out there in the market, and um, that was the um, that was now what are we talking twenty twenty. Uh, so we're so we're talking COVID. Um, so and, and that, that's very important to to keep that in mind. I was I left uh, Pro Sieben. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I thought, well, take a break, travel, um, see the world. What sort of month was it? No, November-ish, December-ish. Okay, so uh, so by that point, 20, it was nine nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Yeah, then when when I left. Okay, so we were just about uh, to head into COVID. Yeah, but so you didn't yet see that this could be a massive crisis. No. Okay. No, no, no. Exactly. I I, I didn't. So and then. You know, I did a bit of, you know, uh, organizing stuff and so on. And then I uh, thought, um, okay, maybe travel, maybe um, maybe uh, see the world. And then COVID hit. Huh? And that was like, okay. And that not only did this somehow interfere with my travel ideas, but it also interfered with my 
view on the world that I had seen the pictures in Italy uh, that, uh, you know, we all thought that we were going to die and that hospitals would overflow and they were asking for medical personnel to support. And then I remembered that I was a, a paramedic during my civil service. A paramedic, uh, like yeah. in the... Um, like driving an ambulance. Yes, like driving an ambulance. First responder. Exactly. And I, again, 20 years ago, right? Um, but I thought, well, I have time now, so let's apply. Let's apply to medical organizations. So that's what I did. I made a list of 40. Uh, I, I probably still have this uh, this Google sheet. Um, uh, organizations from, you know, the German Red Cross to hospitals to uh whatever kind of organization that said, hey, here I am. These are my qualifications. I have time. Do you need me? Of the 40, I would say I, uh, of let's say 35, I did not get any response at all. Um, and five uh, responded. And of those two uh, had like interesting job offers for me. One was for... Um, in Munich for a uh, uh, for the technical university uh, that runs one of the large hospitals there uh, to to run a study and a research project on uh, monitoring COVID patients through a ear sensor, yeah, and they wanted to wanted me to set that up. Let me understand: was this you? applying for a full-time position, total career change? Or were you just going in to say, I want to be helpful in what yeah. looks like, you know, to be the end of days? Yeah. I mean, if there if if there was an email address like COVID at uh, hospital XYZ, I would send my, my email there or I would just send it to the info address and said, hey, here I am. I'm, I want to volunteer. I want to help. This is my CV. I don't know how this somehow applies to what you need. Um, and then I ended up running this research project, building up a, a student team of, I don't know, like 40 people that had like 24 hour shifts uh, monitoring patients in home care through these ear sensors and uh, setting up shop and, what and were, running what operations. What were they measuring these ear sensors? Like fever or what were they measuring? Exactly. Temperature, oxygen levels um, okay. and, uh, all, and some other uh, parameters. And then if those parameters were not like okay, we would call the patients and say, hey, ha has anything changed with your device? Have you taken it out? Is it misplaced? Or are you not feeling well? Because our, our hypothesis, and that was the research product, is if you hospitalize people early, they don't die. Yeah. So, and that was, that was the core of it. And uh, so, you know, we set up partnerships with rental car companies so that we can distribute the, the devices to the patients and all these kinds of things. So that was one job I, I took. How many units did you put into the population? A couple of hundreds, couple of hundreds. I think. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, this was largely about research. Yeah. So you could get a proof of concept and yeah. understand, you know, this yeah. kind of telemedicine can be a good exactly. intervention. Exactly. But for that to run, as I said, we had like some 50 people working because you have like uh, three shifts, 24 hours a day. Um, and you have to do this, distribute the devices, collect them and um, and build up the tech system and all these kinds of things. So and then I took on another role at um, another clinic 
that was not really intrigued by my CV as a as someone who organizes things, but as a uh, uh, first responder and paramedic and said, hey, do you want to work as a um, in intensive care unit volunteer uh, and a COVID station? And I said, okay, yeah, I do that. So I, I worked there for like three days a week and uh, helped wash COVID patients and uh, uh, clean them and uh, yeah. in an ICU environment. Yeah, with yeah. a like hazmat exactly. suit on. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I did for like for like uh, two or three months. Yeah, and that was and that was really interesting. Be, um, and 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 when when I talked to the to the guy recruiting me into this, uh, he said, I mean, he called me and said, Hey, could could you see yourself working in the ICU? Uh, supporting uh, the nurses, um, cleaning the patients, and providing patient care. And I said, yeah, but I don't know if I'm qualified for that anymore because I have, the last time I've done it was like 20 years ago. And he said, it's like riding a bike. Uh, this is not, it's not about, you know, knowing the newest devices and all these kinds of things, but it's basically not being scared of touching people and taking care of people and not afraid afraid of seeing blood or vomit and all these kinds of things he said don't worry about this the rest is easy this is what we are looking for and 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 he, he was right i mean it felt uh, it felt right from from the moment i started um, but it was just very uh, interesting to see how this uh how these jobs are just fundamentally different to what i had done in the past 20 years you know both on the physical side, it's just super exhausting. Uh, uh, Compensation-wise, it's just horrible to see how little uh, people make that work in this in these uh, in these jobs, and how important it is to provide good care. And that was it was just very eye-opening. He dove right into this almost philanthropic mm -hmm. preoccupation at a time when it wasn't at all clear uh, how things might affect you personally. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, bunkering down mm -hmm. or focusing on yourself or your family or your closest yeah. network of friends, you decided to invest into the community. And you also then, by definition, didn't have the time necessarily to go to the labor market and find these prestigious types of jobs. Mm -hmm with high signaling value, with high employer branding, all the things we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what made you double down on this commitment to community as opposed to looking after yourself first, which probably most of us did? Yeah, I think I think it's two things. One is I was still being paid by ProSiebenSat Alliance. I think okay, that, so you had a little that, bit of a cushion. Exa exactly. So that was, I think that's, that's very important. And... Uh, I uh, I asked Prozibin if it were if it were okay if I took on a job in this uh, in this situation for some kind of community and social work, and they said yes. So um, that provided me with the opportunity uh, to to doing that, um, and I was not really scared of, about it because I just thought, well, they know what they're doing. So in terms of protection and so on. Um, and I always had a an interest for medicine, and so I thought, well, it's interesting to you know get a peek into that again. Um, and at the same time, I was still like 
trying to to land my new gig um, and find a new 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 occupation. But um, as you might uh, know or, or or can or can understand, it was not the easiest time to do that because everybody was like saying, "Ah, COVID is just here. We don't really know. We sure. everything's on hold. Yeah, Let's yeah. talk yeah, again absolutely. in three months." Of course. I mean, I remember. And the experience at, at my end around the same time was one of we experienced a very sharp decline in customer demand at the beginning of, of COVID, of course, because people were frightened. They were um, highly concerned. There was obviously a lot of media at the time that, you know, we experienced economic turmoil as a direct cause of the social and humanitarian crisis. And of course, the last thing that people want then is to go off and buy clothes. Uh, you know, discretionary spending that is maybe second or third or fourth in line to your more vital needs. And our main goal in the beginning was to manage the risk of excessive overstock. This then quickly turned around as we saw the importance of commerce and e-commerce and supplying people remotely and so on. So then we had a different kind of problem, but that was the outlook at the time. So I can very much understand if you said companies had this moment of hesitation where yeah. now was maybe not the time to hire someone who, after all, uh, you know, came in at quite a senior level, right? I mean, you were SVP exactly. in a publicly listed company. I think they were publicly listed at the time. Oh, yeah, they were MDAX, yeah. right? So even ducks for or a short e or time. even ducks for a short period of mm -hmm. time, right? So this is Germans uh, top index, Germany's top index. So yeah, I mean, this was a moment to rather hold, yeah, hold steady, right? Yeah, and uh, but then I remembered that okay, let's I want to do something different, but at the same time apply the skills that I have and uh, use the network that I'd built over the years. Um, and I had been in discussion with uh, Russell Reynolds, um, executive search firm already a couple of years back and we did some interviews and they said well you could be a great fit for us and i said um but i don't feel ready yet i i was still like too too hungry for you know operational roles and building something so i said um yeah let's leave the door open but um it's a pass right now um, and then I opened that door again uh, during the time that I was, you know, volunteering. And I said, let's con let's continue the conversations. So we had a couple more conversations and uh, I thought, well, it might be a good step for me right now um, to recalibrate and see what's happening. Also be exposed to different kinds of jobs and roles. And I ended up working at Russell Reynolds as an executive search consultant um, responsible for finding senior leaders for mainly digital businesses. Yeah, so we were, or I was, you know, placing managing directors, CEOs, uh, SVPs uh, into organizations that have a recruiting need. I think I was, I was good at my job. So, but it's a very, very, hardcore structured day that you have to work work in because it's it's very i mean it is a very numbers driven organization so it's very important that you meet your goals and also for yourself you want to perform and it's a numbers game in the end right i mean you um there are two sides of the business the one side is you need to find new clients so someone so i would I, I would call you up at zalando and say hey boris 
if you uh, ever in need of someone senior that you want to find, uh, call me up and I might be your guy. So, and you do that and you pitch and sometimes uh, you have to pitch for a role and say, this is how I would approach the search to find you a candidate that you would want to hire. Um, so that's the one side of the things that, that you do. And then you win a, a pitch every now and then or someone else win, wins a pitch and wants you to support executing this uh, search. And then the work starts. Together with your research uh, colleague, you map the market, you identify potential candidates, say, okay, where can we find potential candidates? Um, and then you, you or the researcher approaches the candidate. So then you talk to the candidate, do an interview, but then you have to write a report on what you've learned and then you have to present uh, pre present your findings to the um, to the client and then the client interviews the candidate and then ultimately someone gets hired into that position but that takes time because it's a numbers game maybe you have to do 10 interviews to find the right candidate but maybe you have to do 100 um, hopefully not but 20 or whatever and that is and every interview takes one and a half hours writing a report takes an hour and then you it's just time it's very very time consuming and and, and that was something that was that was very hard for me to um, on the one hand keep myself motivated all the time because you can't really be that creative the creativity is in identifying the right candidates and the cool thing the very cool thing about the job i really loved it is you get to talk to really cool people because even the ones that you're interviewing as potential candidates are you know very knowledgeable people the very senior guys that have an interesting story to tell um, so that part i very much liked but i couldn't be as creative as i wanted to be and at the same time every now and then a client in a pitch situation says, yeah, after having explained what the person uh, sh should look like, they would say, actually, we're looking for someone like you, someone with a consulting background <laughs> who has worked as a managing director in a firm um, and you know has built up things. So someone like you. And that does something to you. You start questioning your role. Because if you hear that every now and then, then you then you start thinking of it. Yeah, maybe they're right, and then you're like intrigued, maybe to 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 jump, and um, so that initiated a process in my brain. And then I did a again coincidence. Um, I made a sourcing call to. Um, to the CEO of Fresnaf and I wanted to ask for uh, for advice and for a recommendation for a candidate that might fit a uh, search profile that I was working on. And then he talked to me uh, about this and said, ah, you know, no, I don't have any new recommendation that you hadn't uh, come up with yourself. And I said, yeah, well, then uh, it was very nice talking to you. If any role that you might want to have filled comes up think of me give me a call and i might be able to help you and say oh well that's ah, bad timing i just gave a search to another uh, executive search firm uh, 
that was for role XYZ, so it could be directly in your wheelhouse. Uh, and then he said, well, while I'm saying it, actually, that could be something for you to be the candidate for that role. And you heard it one too many times at this point. And I th Exactly. I heard it one too many times. And I also thought, well, that sounds really interesting to join uh, Fresnap, so one of the largest uh, pet retail companies in Europe, building out their innovations unit to, um, you know, making or transforming them from a pure provider of pet food, so essentially a retail store chain, to a caretaker along the entire life cycle of a pet. So I have had nothing to do with pets before. Uh, that was not my industry. Uh, but I thought, well, that's an interesting opportunity. Uh, let's continue to talk. That's what we did. And that's where I'm at. That's where, <laughs> where I'm right now. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about um, your current role and your work at Fresnav in a moment. I want to come back to Russell Reynolds and your role in executive search for a second here. Yeah. And what I heard you say was that there's a fair bit of grind and manual labor involved in, you know, screening the market and long listing all the different profiles and then looking at them and shortlisting. I would imagine that is actually quite interesting because if you design the front end of the funnel in a particular way, you have much more opportunity to solve for things like a diverse slate of candidates that you look at because that's really where you have to make the intervention to make sure that your pool is big enough so that that could be interesting but you're, you're you know then you're shortlisting finally you then have to approach the people that you found there because typically they have jobs they're gainfully employed and they're yeah. presumably for all practical purposes quite happy where they are yeah. i mean everybody at a senior level is all you know people at a very senior level typically have one ear to the market so i don't think it's a miss to say that they would be picking up the telephone that's true but most of them are kind of happy where they are so you're sort of working to shake them up a bit, approaching them. Some people might not respond to email or LinkedIn approaches, what have you. So finally, after all that, you've got your interview slate. So at each stage of this funnel, you've lost a bunch of candidates and energy, I would imagine. Yeah. And then you're in the interview. And then this interview is not just your interview. So it's not just, do I like the client that I've shortlisted against the criteria it's actually the, the, the talent does my client like the talent that i've interviewed yeah. in, in my experience having been a consumer of the service very often you don't really know what you're looking for and once you start the dialogue with the market you adjust your brief and you say you know what maybe maybe our attempt to find someone who's an expert in digital marketplaces and who understands how to compete on inspiration and engagement in fashion and all this and one person who also understands customers and not just the b2b side of managing partners but also end consumers and having all of this in in one culturally compatible personality that is also suitably diverse to enrich the thinking of the existing group well actually all that is not possible and then you begin to make trade-offs and you say well you know what maybe on this particular search it's more important that these people have uh, B2C experience, or maybe here it's more important that they've built a customer-facing app, and maybe here it's more important that they've yeah. done big partnership deals on the B2B side. So finally, you adjust and you start, you know, rinse and repeat. What made you think that this was the right thing for you in the first place? Because I, I see you very much more as someone who sees an opportunity, pulls a team together, executes against the opportunity, whether it's in 
improving health outcomes in the work you did in COVID or whether it's mm -hmm. in building businesses and startups in the work you did prior or on consulting projects. Here, you're very much in that meta level of, you know, all the activities we've described just now. What made you think this was the right thing for you? I thought it's, first of all, it's interesting to see that, to, uh, uh, to look behind the curtain of a new industry. So I was just curious on, on the one hand. On the other hand, as I thought, I know a lot of people, so it can be that hard to, you know, land um, assignments or to find candidates. <coughs> and I'm a talkative guy, so I might be easy to convince them. And I was right with all of that. But at the same time, I thought it just wasn't right at that time. But um, in the beginning, I thought this is something that I would, would want to explore because it has similarities to the jobs I'd done before. It is a professional services role, so very client-focused. I had done this at McKinsey. Um, it's also a funnel business in a way of identifying candidates and then narrowing it down to the one that gets the job, comparable to identifying startups in my uh, accelerator world and narrowing it down and knowing uh, what can go wrong. And it's, it's actually very similar. So that's also why... It was not really hard for me to transition into that role because there are a lot of similarities there. Um, but it was just lacking the creativity side that I obviously need for my happiness. And the kinds of problem, like business problem solving, presumably, right? That you also thrive on or no? Yeah, um, but there's more business problem solving in this profession as one might think. Because if you're a good executive search consultant, you help the client find or specify the requirements better. You help them with the reorganization and saying, yeah, you might think you need someone who's a fashion expert and has done X, Y, Z, but think about what if you... And then also it's about really forming a working organization in your head by placing maybe or presenting an outlier candidate to the client and saying, yeah, I know you said you want X, Y, Z, but here is candidate uh, or a different kind of candidate. But you really should talk to her because yeah. she is really what you need. Yeah. And I would even add that, I mean, th th this is your interaction with the client, but I would even add that if you have that business credibility you can really bring around a candidate as well yeah because if the oh, candidate yeah. i mean having you know, speaking from the candidate position in the, in the instances where i was directly in conversation with executive search professionals and they tried to make a position attractive where i could sense that they don't fully have the business grasp grasp to really get their arms around what that would entail and why it's exciting why it could be exciting i'm not really buying it and so if you could do the opposite, if you really understood, listen, if you approach it in this way, you could turn around this business or you could grow this business, you could capture this, what, what have you, then you start to listen. Yeah. So there is for sure that side. And that is also something that I learned and I think it's a very, very cool profession. I very much like working at Russell Reynolds as well, is this is a truly a long-term business to be in because you build 
relationships, and that is important. If you're a transactional executive search consultant, you're just trying to fill that position as quickly as possible, you might be successful in that very one instance, but that's it. Yeah, You want someone, because imagine you're a candidate and the executive search consultant approaches you, does the interview, and you might, you as a candidate, might actually be sold on this position, but the executive search consultant says, you know, I don't think it's the right thing for you. Yeah, I think you are too much of an XYZ person and this it won't be a good fit. Trust me on that one. And then you realize after a while that it was actually in your best interest. You have built a very good relationship. And then the next time the executive search consultant calls and says, this is now the right thing for you. Yeah. You jump and it was, uh, uh, and it's something that you really enjoy. You will hire the executive search consultant for your next searches as well. And so this really emphasizes, it's like a snowball. Yeah. And that is very, uh, very important to understand. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, this is, a, you're absolutely right. It's a long-term game for sure. And I had always pictured that the kind of capital that you build up there, unlike the VC examples where it's, you know, economic capital here it's a sort of social capital yes where really the quality of your network and relationships then begins to pay dividends maybe much later in the process as you can then draw on people you've spoken with a few years ago but you have good rapport with them yeah. they respect you you know you understand their capabilities as well so it's a much shorter process of recommending someone and so on but again that takes years to invest into before it really um, really pays dividends in that way what are some of the things that, as an executive search professional, make you go, wow, this looks like a really interesting talent? And what are some of the things that make you go, mm, I don't know, you know, this looks like a pattern that I've seen before that makes me skeptical of this individual's mm -hmm. yeah. prospect? That's a very, it's a very, very good question. And I was somehow, I was super surprised by the, uh, by the lack of knowledge of some of the candidates that I talked to that were in super senior positions. <laughs> yeah, where you said, wow, it's very, very interesting that you made it this far. Um, on the other hand, I had, I remember, I remember an interview that was, it, it was just really cool. Um, I was looking for a chief uh, product officer role. And I had a candidate that I talked to and uh, he, you know, checked all the boxes and uh, worked in product before. And then, and it was not on his CV, but he mentioned during our conversation that uh, originally he was trained as a, as a chef. So he was running <laughs> a kitchen uh, in a restaurant. And, um, uh, and he said, yeah, but that's not relevant. And then and I said, no, this is exactly what's relevant because this is what's really setting you apart. Because if you manage to run and, and it was, I, I even believe it was a Michelin star uh, restaurant, uh, restaurant that, he, that he learned in. And it was like, if you make it there and you get all the processes aligned and you have always the customer in mind and uh, you, know, you need to make sure that the economics work out and so on and so forth, this, is, this sets you up for business in a very, very good way and in a very unique way. And these things, somehow to see what people have done that is actually a much better indicator for their future performance and success. This is 
that that was something that I really enjoyed when this when this happened. Sounds like a really lovely story. And the um, the thing that came to my mind immediately is a chef in the kitchen has to be highly details orientated. So anything that goes out to the customer yeah. will get a final glance from chef. And only if chef is ready to say this can go to our diners, yeah. um, will the people serve. And to me, it reveals a real care and commitment to quality that sometimes in very senior positions, it depends on the company, of course, and the culture of the company. There are companies that are highly details orientated, even at the most senior levels. Amazon's a you know, classic, famous example of this sort of behavior, I would say over at Zalando were also pretty typical for this kind of behavior. But not not all companies are. There are senior executives who set strategy, give direction, provide coaching and guidance to senior people, and then let the senior people execute. They don't feel like they need to, you know, second guess yeah. and quality check their work. Yeah. Um, but if that's the kind of role that um, you need and the kind of personality and profile that will have impact, a chef might be just the right thing, right? That's true. Yeah, Very it's, true. It's, it's, it's interesting. But you left that world because in in some ways there was something in your own background, a mm -hmm. recipe for success that this time the team at Fresnav saw. Yeah. And so tell us, what what exactly do you do now and how is your, your job, uh, let's say, split across being an operator in the company, being, again, a leader of a sort of innovation slash accelerator, incubator, Mm -hmm. uh, ventures arm and what's your involvement with the operating companies or portfolio companies mm -hmm. that are managed there uh, first of all I um, I am part of the um, executive management board at Fresnav so we as a team are responsible for the overall success of Fresnav as a whole um, in addition, I run uh, or I'm responsible for the services and innovation uh, department um, or area which um, ultimately helps in the, in the transformation from or the transition from a pure pet food store chain to uh, an ecosystem provider around or for everything pet uh, and vet. So it's also about, you know, health of the of the pets and so from uh, turning a or moving a company from a pet food store chain to th this you know ecosystem is quite an undertaking and if you if you envision the life cycle of a pet from you know actually as a pet owner or future pet owner deciding on whether you need a pet or want a pet and what kind of pet, where to get it. Uh, then you decide f for a dog and then where to get it vaccinated, um, what kind of food to buy, what kind of toys to get, what kind of insurance to find. Secure it through a GPS tracker so that it doesn't get lost through ultimately burial and uh, cremation and then uh, thinking about the next pet. This is there are so many touch points that, that, you, that you could have, right? Presumably yeah, you could have. But exactly. in, in actual fact, you know, um, we have two dogs. We were chatting about it as we got started on this conversation. We have two big dogs. And really, from a share of wallet point of view, the way our household works is once a month, we have to buy two giant sized bags of dog food. Uh, we do pay attention to what it is because it has a direct, like, incredible impact on. Uh, the health and, and well-being of the animal. It's very visible, so we make a quality choice, but that's it. So 
there really isn't anything else happening there in terms of um, building a customer relationship. There's only the pet food. Yeah. But now you're saying if you open the aperture a little bit, there's all these other verticals or customer propositions that you could potentially uh, explore developing and then building a relationship with the customer and then monetizing and really doing much more value creation than, than you currently are as a retailer of primarily yeah. pet food. Exactly. Which the name suggests, right? Exactly. And I mean, this is this is, this is is the entire idea of, you know, building a long-lasting and trusted relationship with our customers. And so all these touch points that I just mentioned, and the, the, those are just uh, a few of them, um, we want to play an active role in. And we can do that through various means. One is we build it up ourselves. The other is we find a partner for that um, and set up a corporation. We could buy a company to do that. And all other kinds of somehow connection are you know possible. And that is what I'm responsible for. It's first of all, identifying which of the touch points along the life cycle of a pet are the ones most promising and which ones do we want to start with and then also deciding which way do we want to go and which way of collaboration do we want to take on for this particular touch point yeah and i mean just to give you some examples of sure. things that we that, 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 that we do there one is um we have a insurance company that we work with to provide pet insurance um, we run our own activate uh, veterinary clinics we have dr fresnaf which is a telemedicine service um, we have a gps tracker uh, that helps you uh, find your dog when it runs away um, we have a subscription business similar to glossy boss box where you can um, where you can get you know new toys and snacks every month, and those are just some examples of the things that we do uh, that I'm responsible for and that the team that I work with, uh, you know, creates. Yeah, is this um, you know incremental and marginal somehow to the core business, or do you really see these as being here's the next big thing after toys and accessories? Here's the next big thing yeah. in addition to food that can really uh, scale the company not just by you know a few basis points but dramatically yeah increase its uh, yes you're absolutely absolutely right i mean relevance is uh, the name of the game and if you take a look at you know some overall market data that you find you can see that the uh that the service market is almost as big as the food and toys market yeah, so this is for us it has the possibility to become a substantial share uh, of the group's revenue and also it helps boost our um, food and toy and accessory sales as well yeah so but it's but it is relevant it's really relevant one big component of it is of course pet health so everything vet related is a big chunk of it and that is and it becomes a more relevant part in the future because as humans um, do pets also get older uh, if you get older you need more medical attention 
and these kinds of things and services will become more relevant in the future because the the relationship a pet owner has to uh, to a, to his pet is just more profound than it had been in the past. Yeah, always very striking to observe this in the context of Germany, where I think Germany is one of the countries that spends least on purchasing meat. I mean, not for animals, but meat for, yeah. you know, personal consumption. One of the, let's say, lowest investments there across Europe. And yet uh, for their pets, uh, it's one of the highest spending nation, I think, in Europe in terms of discretionary spending for, for the animal and always striking to see how deep these bonds go. Yeah, I have one uh, last business type question. Um, about the different propositions, which I find interesting. And I wanted to ask you, do you have a model of customer lifetime value and how that develops if your customers buy from more than one proposition? So presumably, you'll have some customers that only use the veterinary services. Then you have mm -hmm. some customers maybe from the company that you partner with that are existing customers who just um, uh, consume insurance products. Mm -hmm. Do you have a model of how the total customer lifetime value goes up disproportionately the moment that you have them consume more than one proposition? Mm -hmm. We don't, but we wish we had, and we're working on having it. Um, uh, first of all, the customer lifetime um, model or thinking is just something that just gradually, you know, transforms or, or makes its way into the organi organization and in, into the thinking. Because some of the, um, some of the products that you, that you had previously sold are just you know could also seen as one of purchases right you just buy a, a can of food yeah that's it uh, of course that's not true because typically the uh, you have repeat customers and that's why we have uh, introduced our own loyalty program our friends as we call it friends program um, Uh, so that we can see how the customers behave. I mean, and what the what the lifetime value is, and we will get to a point where we really see what the difference is of a customer that buys, you know, only food, the ones that also buy insurance, the ones that, uh, you know, vet services and insurance, and so on and so forth. Because this is where the value, of course, is that you really build a close relationship to your customers. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, very similar model from our perspective in the uh, in the business of selling clothes uh, and then expanding to beauty and so on, right? You want to build deep customer relationship and yeah. overall be, you know, one of the most important destinations when our customers think lifestyle needs, not just fashion, but fashion, beauty, maybe other things as well. And then uh, what happens is that your customer acquisition costs pay much higher dividends later on as you develop many more touch points across exactly. all these different verticals. Exactly. I mean, we, we want to get to a point where customer thinks pet or vet and thinks uh, Fresnaf. How would you characterize the way you split your time between being an operator, being a strategic architect who just basically makes plans and allocates capital to doing real operational management to supporting your portfolio companies? I try to reduce um, almost all of it and try to empower my leadership team to make the right decisions on their own. I try to uh, give freedom and provide guidance where needed, but I, even though I am, I can be very detail-oriented detail -orient, uh, detail and say, hey, I want to change this 
font size on the website or the button. Why is the button there? And I do this occasionally because when I stumble up, uh, across something, then I send an email. But I don't do that as a as a main task and say, no, I'll, now I test it because there are others that can do this better. Um, I'm there to motivate. I'm there to provide guidance and help my leadership team lead and um, help them with leadership principles, with um, with things of helping make their lives better and their jobs more fulfilling. Is that maybe one of the main differences to when you did a similar job back in the Posebens at Eins days, that you spend more time picking talent and then working with your leaders, developing them, coaching them, as opposed to prior, or is yeah. it very similar for you? No, I think it has changed um, on the one hand because I uh, became wiser and older <laughs> and uh, I see more value in um, in helping leadership. Um, and it's also, times have changed. It's just a different way of working with with talent and with uh, with your teams also COVID has done uh, um, something to the uh, to the workforce as well I mean, when it comes to remote work when it comes to you know building culture um, uh, working hours flexibility and all these kind of things it's just completely new if I applied the things that I had done or uh, I had applied back at Posiben now at, uh, at Fresnaf it wouldn't work at all because things have changed, people have changed, perceptions have, have they won't changed. won't follow you. No, they won't, and I wouldn't want them to. Also, and this is and this is also why this is super challenging and exciting um, to switch jobs and uh, work in different decades. One has to say now, um, because you see how things change, and you need to stay ahead of this, and you need to be able to be flexible on your thinking as well, because if you're not, you will definitely fall behind. So let's conclude with the final view on your goals. So you've obviously come very, very far in all of those positions. You've seen so much, you've loaded up a lot of responsibility, have discovered different industries. Looking at your portfolio of work and beyond, what are your biggest goals now? What's important to you in work and life? I like creating things. I like to see how things grow. I like to see people develop. I think it, it gives me enormous joy to see my team succeed and to see people that I worked with, that I coached for a certain period of time, uh, succeed in the business world. Um, and um, for me, it's also very important to stay healthy so sports is very important and dear to me because i enjoy it and it and I, and, and i also very very fortunate that i uh, don't suffer from any injuries or diseases and i at least you know believe that part of it is due to the fact that i have continuously done sports and uh, try to eat, to eat healthy so uh, this is something that i also want to continue what do you, what do you do I did a lot of CrossFit. Yeah, you had the physique for it. I, I, you know, when I saw you on LinkedIn, I was like, "But this guy has um, amazing and, physique." And now I do, uh, you know, I, w I go to the gym and do running, strength training, yeah. basically running. Yeah. Any races or any events planned? Mm, I'm still. 
I want to run a marathon. I ran a half marathon um, last year. Um, I want to run a marathon again because I did it once and I finished. Honestly, a very small anecdote. I finished last in the Stockholm Marathon a couple of years ago. And I, I think the cutoff time was like six hours and I finished in six hours and two minutes or something um, because I had terrible knee pain at kilometer, I don't know, 10 or so, but I didn't want to give up. So I basically walked, walked, uh, <laughs> walked the entire, entire marathon and I would love to at least once in my life run a marathon. To, to do it on, yeah. on a proper pace. Yeah. I will also come clean. I like cycling. And I signed up to a cycling race, and it was a category called Jeder Mann, Jede Frau. So basically, that's the lowest category. It's not a race license. You're un- you're unclassed. I was even in my age group, so this was 40 to 50 was my cohort, and I came second to last. And the level there was so high, at least from my point of view. I did train for the race. I tried really, really hard. I brought up my FTP, which is a level of you know how much power I can generate for an hour. Uh-huh. And I came second to last, and the other person who came last, you know, bless him, he was really, really, really struggling. And so I wasn't particularly proud of, of beating him. But, um, you know, anyway, it's but sometimes so it's good it. to mean, know. It's very important. It's very important to just do it. And, oh, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it was a goal, right? I mean, at least I will say it was a goal for me to go and do like a semi-professional bike race. Professional in the sense that it wasn't like a public event, like, you know, Veloton or something yeah. or Velocity, whatever they're called. But it was actually a race and did it and did terrible, <laughs> but, but lived to tell the tale. All right. I want to wrap us up by just running through a couple of quick uh, one-liners. And I'd love for you to complete the sentence. Okay. Okay. So I'll say the first part of the sentence and you finish it, please. And I'll start now. I went to South by Southwest 2023 and it was? Underwhelming because it, it looked like... Uh, five years ago hasn't changed but at the same time it was super interesting to see how artificial intelligence will become a big part of our lives and how uh, even the Americans are really uh, thinking about data protection now it was interesting to see and this was in Austin yes and is Austin that interesting hotbed of technology and culture that everybody claims it is yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I mean, you can see a lot of companies move from Silicon Valley to Austin because it's cheaper there. Um, also, but weather is nice. It's a very liberal city, uh, which helps uh, attract talent. Yeah, and it's definitely a place one should go to. If money was no object at all, Jens Pippich would? Mm, still do something and create things. My happy place to take a breather and let my mind wander is? By the ocean. Any particular? No. Beach? No. Ocean? No. The best thing about working with private equity investors? That you have uh, money to uh, spend on business building. The worst thing about working with private equity investors? that at some point in time and that uh, rather sooner than than later they want to sell and uh, force you in a direction you might not want to go. The most surprising thing about the pet food slash accessories slash animal insurance slash veterinary industry is? Uh, How people prioritize their pets 
over themselves. Over themselves even. Wow. Yeah. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. But I also like cats. I must I must say even though that's not I'm partly scared of cats. So I'm more of a dog kind of guy. <laughs> Same here. Jens, thank you so much for your time. Any final thoughts for those who are in the earlier stages of their career? Any advice or recommendation you would like to offer to them? Yeah, stay curious. Uh, stay foolish, as uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs once said. And don't overthink too much and don't optimize on uh, on time. You know, it doesn't really matter if you study for one semester more or less or whatever. No one cares. Nobody even takes a look at it. Do something that you're interested in. Try it out. And uh, that will be the most rewarding thing. And this will help you in the future. I mean, just do it. Awesome. Jens, thank you so much. Really enjoyed sitting down with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. One small request before you go. If there is a particular topic you'd like to hear covered within the broad space of people's biggest goals in work and life, please let me know. If there's anything that could be better, format or content, again, please let me know. This is all still pretty new, so feedback is highly welcome. You can send me a message on LinkedIn. My profile is accessible at linkedin.com slash in slash Boris Avenstein, all one word. Thank you. Thank you.